If she had offered to come aboard, I really think I would have tried to shoot her, said the man of patches nervously. I have been risking my life every day for the last fortnight to keep her out of the house. She got in one day and kicked up a row about those miserable rags I picked up in the storeroom to mend my clothes with. I wasn't decent. At least it must have been that, for she talked like a fury to Kurtz for an hour, pointing at me now and then. I don't understand the dialect of this tribe. Luckily for me, I fancy, Kurtz felt too ill that day to care, or there would have been mischief. I don't understand. No, it's too much for me. Ah, well, it's all over now. At this moment, I heard Kurtz's deep voice behind the curtain. Save me? Save the ivory, you mean? Don't tell me, save me. Why, I've had to save you. You are interrupting my plans now. Sick, sick. Not so sick as you would like to believe. Never mind. I'll carry my ideas out yet. I will return. I'll show you what can be done, you with your little peddling notions. You are interfering with me. I will return. I... The manager came out. He did me the honor to take me under the arm and lead me aside. He is very low, very low, he said. He considered it necessary to sigh, but neglected to be consistently sorrowful. We have done all we could for him, haven't we? But there is no disguising the fact Mr. Kurtz has done more harm than good to the company. He did not see the time was not ripe for vigorous action. Cautiously, cautiously, that's my principle. We must be cautious yet. The district is closed to us for a time. Deplorable. Upon the whole, the trade will suffer. I don't deny there's a remarkable quantity of ivory, mostly fossil. We must save it at all events. But look how precarious the position is. And why? Because the method is unsound. Do you, said I, looking at the shore, call it unsound method? Without doubt, he exclaimed hotly. Don't you? No method at all, I murmured after a while. Exactly, he exulted. I anticipated this. Shows a complete want of judgment. It is my duty to point it out in the proper quarter. Oh, said I, that fellow, what's his name, the brickmaker, will make a readable report for you. He appeared confounded for a moment. It seemed to me I had never breathed an atmosphere so vile. And I turned mentally to Kurtz for relief, positively for relief. Nevertheless, I think Mr. Kurtz is a remarkable man, I said with emphasis. He started, dropped on me a heavy glance, said very quietly, he was, and turned his back on me. My hour of favor was over. I found myself lumped along with Kurtz as a partisan of methods for which the time was not ripe. I was unsound. Ah! but it was something to have at least a choice of nightmares. I had turned to the wilderness, really. Not to Mr. Kurtz, who I was ready to admit was as good as buried. And for a moment it seemed to me as if I also were buried in a vast grave full of unspeakable secrets. I felt an intolerable weight oppressing my breast. The smell of the damp earth, the unseen presence of victorious corruption— the darkness of an impenetrable night. The Russian tapped me on the shoulder. I heard him mumbling and stammering something about Brother Seaman couldn't conceal, knowledge of matters that would affect Mr. Kurtz's reputation. I waited. 
For him, evidently, Mr. Kurtz was not in his grave. I suspect that for him, Mr. Kurtz was one of the immortals. Well, said I at last, speak out. As it happens, I am Mr. Kurtz's friend, in a way. He stated with a good deal of formality that had we not been of the same profession, he would have kept the matter to himself, without regard to consequences. He suspected there was an active ill-will towards him on the part of these white men that— "'You are right,' I said, remembering a certain conversation I had overheard. "'The manager thinks you ought to be hanged.' He showed a concern at this intelligence, which amused me at first. "'I had better get out of the way quietly,' he said earnestly. "'I can do no more for Kurtz now. "'And they would soon find some excuse. "'What's to stop them? "'There's a military post three hundred miles from here.' "'Well, upon my word,' said I, "'perhaps you had better go.' if you have any friends amongst the savages nearby. Plenty, he said. They are simple people. And I want nothing, you know. He stood biting his lip. Then, I don't want any harm to happen to these whites here. But of course I was thinking of Mr. Kurtz's reputation. But you are a brother seaman, and— All right, said I after a time. Mr. Kurtz's reputation is safe with me. I did not know how truly I spoke. He informed me, lowering his voice, that it was Kurtz who had ordered the attack to be made on the steamer. He hated sometimes the idea of being taken away, and then again, but I don't understand these matters. I am a simple man. He thought it would scare you away, that you would give it up, thinking him dead. I could not stop him. Oh, I had an awful time of it this last month. Very well, I said. He is all right now. Yes, he muttered, not very convinced, apparently. Thanks, said I. I shall keep my eyes open. But quiet, huh? He urged anxiously. It would be awful for his reputation if anybody here... I promised a complete discretion with great gravity. I have a canoe and three blackfellows waiting not very far. I am off. Could you give me a few Martini Henry cartridges? I could and did, with proper secrecy. He helped himself with a wink at me to a handful of my tobacco. Between sailors, you know, good English tobacco. At the door of the pilot house, he turned round. I say, haven't you a pair of shoes you could spare? He raised one leg. Look. The soles were tied with knotted strings sandal-wise under his bare feet. I rooted out an old pair at which he looked with admiration before tucking it under his left arm. One of his pockets, bright red, was bulging with cartridges. From the other, dark blue, peeped Towson's inquiry, etc., etc. He seemed to think himself excellently well-equipped for a renewed encounter with the wilderness. Ah, I'll never meet such a man again. You ought to have heard him recite poetry. His own, too. It was. He told me. Poetry. He rolled his eyes at the recollection of these delights. Oh, he enlarged my mind. Goodbye, said I. He shook hands and vanished in the night. Sometimes I ask myself whether I had ever really seen him, whether it was possible to meet such a phenomenon. When I woke up shortly after midnight, his warning came to my mind with his hint of danger that seemed in the starred darkness real enough to make me get up for the purpose of having a look around.
On the hill, a big fire burned, illuminating fitfully a crooked corner of the station house. One of the agents with a picket of a few of our blacks, armed for the purpose, was keeping guard over the ivory. But deep within the forest, red gleams that wavered, that seemed to sink and rise from the ground amongst confused columnar shapes of intense blackness, showed the exact position of the camp where Mr. Kurtz's adorers were keeping their uneasy vigil. The monotonous beating of a drum filled the air with muffled shocks and a lingering vibration. A steady droning sound of many men chanting each to himself some weird incantation came out of the black flat wall of the woods as the humming of bees comes out of a hive, and had a strange narcotic effect upon my half-awake senses. I believe I dozed off leaning over the rail, till an abrupt burst of yells, an overwhelming outbreak of a pent-up and mysterious frenzy, woke me up in a bewildered wonder. It was cut short all at once, and the low droning went on, with an effect of audible and soothing silence. I glanced casually into the little cabin. A light was burning within, but Mr. Kurtz was not there. I think I would have raised an outcry if I had believed my eyes, but I didn't believe them at first. The thing seemed so impossible. The fact is I was completely unnerved by the sheer blank fright, pure abstract terror, unconnected with any distinct shape of physical danger. What made this emotion so overpowering was, how shall I define it, the moral shock I received as if something altogether monstrous, intolerable to thought and odious to the soul, had been thrust upon me unexpectedly. This lasted, of course, the merest fraction of a second, and then the usual sense of commonplace, deadly danger, the possibility of a sudden onslaught and massacre or something of the kind, which I saw impending, was positively welcome and composing. It pacified me. In fact, so much that I did not raise an alarm. There was an agent, buttoned up inside an ulster, and sleeping in a chair on deck within three feet of me. The yells had not awakened him. He snored very slightly. I left him to his slumbers and leaped ashore. I did not betray Mr. Kurtz. It was ordered I should never betray him. It was written I should be loyal to the nightmare of my choice. I was anxious to deal with this shadow by myself alone, and to this day I don't know why I was so jealous of sharing with anyone the peculiar blackness of that experience. As soon as I got on the bank, I saw a trail, a broad trail through the grass. I remembered the exultation with which I said to myself, He can't walk. He is crawling on all fours. I've got him. The grass was wet with dew. I strode rapidly with clenched fists. I fancy I had some vague notion of falling upon him and giving him a drubbing. I don't know. I had some imbecile thoughts. The knitting old woman with the cat obtruded herself upon my memory as a most improper person to be sitting at the other end of such an affair. I saw a row of pilgrims squirting lead in the air out of Winchesters held to the hip. I thought I would never get back to the steamer and imagined myself living alone and unarmed in the woods to an advanced age. Such silly things, you know. And I remember I confounded the beat of the drum with the beating of my heart, and was pleased at its calm regularity. I kept to the track, though, then stopped to listen. The night was very clear. 
a dark blue space sparkling with dew and starlight, in which black things stood very still. I thought I could see a kind of motion ahead of me. I was strangely cocksure of everything that night. I actually left the track and ran in a wide semicircle, I verily believed chuckling to myself, so as to get in front of that stir, of that motion I had seen, if indeed I had seen anything. I was circumventing Kurtz as though it had been a boyish game. I came upon him, and if he had not heard me coming, I would have fallen over him too, but he got up in time. He rose, unsteady, long, pale, indistinct, like a vapor exhaled by the earth, and swayed slightly, misty and silent before me, while at my back the fires loomed between the trees and the murmur of many voices issued from the forest. I had cut him off cleverly, but when actually confronting him I seemed to come to my senses. I saw the danger in its right proportion. It was by no means over yet. Suppose he began to shout. Though he could hardly stand, there was still plenty of vigor in his voice. Go away. Hide yourself, he said in that profound tone. It was very awful. I glanced back. We were within thirty yards from the nearest fire. A black figure stood up, strode on long black legs, waving long black arms across the glow. It had horns, antelope horns, I think, on its head. Some sorcerer, some witch-man, no doubt. It looked fiend-like enough. Do you know what you are doing? I whispered. Perfectly, he answered, raising his voice for that single word. It sounded to me far off and yet loud like a hail through a speaking trumpet. If he makes a row now, we are lost, I thought to myself. This clearly was not a case for fisticuffs, even apart from the very natural aversion I had to beat that shadow, this wandering and tormented thing. You will be lost, I said, utterly lost. One gets sometimes such a flash of inspiration, you know, I did say the right thing, though indeed he could not have been more irretrievably lost than he was at this very moment when the foundations of our intimacy were being laid to endure, to endure even to the end, even beyond. I had immense plans, he muttered irresolutely. Yes, said I, but if you try to shout, I'll smash your head with— There was not a stick or a stone near. I will throttle you for good, I corrected myself. I was on the threshold of great things, he pleaded, in a voice of longing, with a wistfulness of tone that made my blood run cold. And now, for this stupid scoundrel, your success in Europe is assured in any case, I affirmed steadily. I did not want to have the throttling of him, you understand, and indeed it would have been very little use for any practical purpose. I tried to break the spell, the heavy, mute spell of the wilderness, that seemed to draw him to its pitiless breast by the awakening of forgotten and brutal instincts— by the memory of gratified and monstrous passions. This alone, I was convinced, had driven him out to the edge of the forest, to the bush, towards the gleam of fires, the throb of drums, the drone of weird incantations. This alone had beguiled his unlawful soul beyond the bounds of permitted aspirations. And don't you see, the terror of the position was not in being knocked on the head, though I had a very lively sense of that danger too, but in this— that I had to deal with a being to whom I could not appeal in the name of anything high or low. I had, even like the niggers, to invoke him, himself, his own exalted and incredible degradation. 
There was nothing either above or below him, and I knew it. He had kicked himself loose of the earth, confound the man he had kicked the very earth to pieces. He was alone, and I before him did not know whether I stood on the ground or floated in the air. I've been telling you what we said, repeating the phrases we pronounced. But what's the good? They were common everyday words, the familiar vague sounds exchanged on every waking day of life. But what of that? They had behind them to my mind the terrific suggestiveness of words heard in dreams, of phrases spoken in nightmares. Soul. If anybody ever struggled with a soul, I am the man. And I wasn't arguing with a lunatic either. Believe me or not, his intelligence was perfectly clear. Concentrated, it is true, upon himself with horrible intensity, yet clear. And therein was my only chance— "'barring, of course, the killing him there and then, "'which wasn't so good on account of unavoidable noise. "'But his soul was mad. "'Being alone in the wilderness, it had looked within itself, "'and by heavens, I tell you, it had gone mad. "'I had, for my sins, I suppose, "'to go through the ordeal of looking into it myself. "'No eloquence could have been so withering "'to one's belief in mankind "'as his final burst of sincerity.' He struggled with himself, too. I saw it. I heard it. I saw the inconceivable mystery of a soul that knew no restraint, no faith, and no fear, yet struggling blindly with itself. I kept my head pretty well, but when I had him at last stretched on the couch, I wiped my forehead, while my legs shook under me as though I had carried half a ton on my back down that hill. And yet I had only supported him— his bony arm clasped round my neck, and he was not much heavier than a child. When next day we left at noon, the crowd of whose presence behind the curtain of trees I had been acutely conscious all the time, flowed out of the woods again, filled the clearing, covered the slope with a mass of naked, breathing, quivering bronze bodies. I steamed up a bit, then swung downstream, and two thousand eyes followed the evolutions of the splashing, thumping, fierce river demon beating the water with its terrible tail and breathing black smoke into the air. In front of the first rank, along the river, three men plastered with bright red earth from head to foot strutted to and fro restlessly. When we came abreast again, they faced the river, stamped their feet, nodded their horned heads, swayed their scarlet bodies— they shook towards the fierce river demon a bunch of black feathers, a mangy skin with a pendant tail, something that looked a dried gourd. They shouted periodically together strings of amazing words that resembled no sounds of human language, and the deep murmurs of the crowd, interrupted suddenly, were like the responses of some satanic litany. We had carried Kurtz into the pilot house. There was more air there. Lying on the couch, he stared through the open shutter. There was an eddy in the mass of human bodies, and the woman with helmeted head and tawny cheeks rushed out to the very brink of the stream. She put out her hands, shouted something, and all that wild mob took up the shout in a roaring chorus of articulated, rapid, breathless utterance. "'Do you understand this?' I asked. He kept on looking out past me with fiery, longing eyes, with a mingled expression of wistfulness and hate, he made no answer, 
But I saw a smile, a smile of indefinable meaning appear on his colorless lips that for a moment after twitched convulsively. Do I not? he said slowly, gasping as if the words had been torn out of him by a supernatural power. I pulled the string of the whistle, and I did this because I saw the pilgrims on deck getting out their rifles with an air of anticipating a jolly lark. At the sudden screech, there was a movement of abject terror through that wedged mass of bodies. Don't! Don't you frighten them away! cried someone on the deck disconsolately. I pulled the string time after time. They broke and ran. They leaped, they crouched, they swerved, they dodged the flying terror of the sound. The three red chaps had fallen flat, face down on the shore, as though they had been shot dead. Only the barbarous and superb woman did not so much as flinch, and stretched tragically her bare arms after us, over the somber and glittering river. And then that imbecile crowd down on the deck started their little fun, and I could see nothing more for smoke. The brown current ran swiftly out of the heart of darkness, bearing us down towards the sea with twice the speed of our upward progress. And Kurtz's life was running swiftly, too, ebbing, ebbing out of his heart into the sea of inexorable time. The manager was very placid. He had no vital anxieties now. He took us both in with a comprehensive and satisfied glance. The affair had come off as well as could be wished. I saw the time approaching when I would be left alone, of the party of unsound method. The pilgrims looked upon me with disfavor. I was, so to speak, numbered with the dead. It is strange how I accepted this unforeseen partnership, this choice of nightmares forced upon me in the tenebrous land, invaded by these mean and greedy phantoms. Kurtz discoursed. A voice. A voice. It rang deep to the very last. It survived his strength to hide in the magnificent folds of eloquence the barren darkness of his heart. Oh, he struggled. He struggled. The wastes of his weary brain were haunted by shadowy images now, images of wealth and fame revolving obsequiously round his unextinguishable gift of noble and lofty expression. My intended, my station, my career, my ideas. These were the subjects for the occasional utterances of elevated sentiments. The shade of the original Kurtz frequented the bedside of the hollow sham, whose fate it was to be buried presently in the mold of primeval earth. But both the diabolic love and the unearthly hate of the mysteries it had penetrated fought for the possession of that soul satiated with primitive emotions, avid of lying fame, of sham distinction, of all the appearances of success and power. Sometimes he was contemptibly childish. He desired to have kings meet him at railway stations on his return from some ghastly nowhere, where he intended to accomplish great things. You show them you have in you something that is really profitable. And then there will be no limits to the recognition of your ability, he would say. Of course, you must take care of the motives, right motives, always. The long reaches that were like one and the same reach, monotonous bends that were exactly alike, slipped past the steamer with their multitude of secular trees looking patiently after this grimy fragment of another world, the forerunner of change, of conquest, 
of trade, of massacres, of blessings. I looked ahead, piloting. Close the shutter, said Kurt suddenly one day. I can't bear to look at this. I did so. There was a silence. Oh, but I will wring your heart yet, he cried at the invisible wilderness. We broke down, as I had expected, and had to lie up for repairs at the head of an island. This delay was the first thing that shook Kurtz's confidence. One morning he gave me a packet of papers and a photograph, the lot tied together with a shoestring. Keep this for me, he said. This noxious fool, meaning the manager, is capable of prying into my boxes when I am not looking.' 